0: This is a recording from the Sunday, January 10th, 2016 meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca. So the title of my talk, sermon, call it whatever you want, is How to Be a Christian Atheist. Uh, And the title is deliberately provocative. I do hope to offend all of you, uh, make you a little uncomfortable, and make you rethink some things. But it's not, I'm not being needlessly facetious. I do genuinely consider myself to be a Christian atheist. And I'm actually not the first to do so. Uh, how many of you saw the Sam Harris-Douglas Murray interview? Oh, I thought I was among friends. Uh, but, <laughs> so Douglas Murray considers himself to be a Christian atheist. And he mentioned a book called Christian Atheist. And the author of it is in charge of the Oxford Church, the Oxford University Church. And he interviewed 12 ministers and Christian intellectuals who also consider themselves to be Christian atheists. The attitude that I want all of us to maintain is that of 1 Thessalonians 5, which says, test all things and hold fast to what is good. So maintain an attitude of healthy skepticism, right? Test what I say, run it through the filter of evidence and logical consistency, but hold fast to what I say that is that is, that is good, consistent, and supported. Uh, I want us to get to know each other a little bit first. How many of you were raised religious? Yeah, so, so most of you. How many of you are still religious? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of I thought. Uh, how many of you would consider yourselves to be agnostics? Okay, yeah. how many of you consider yourselves atheists? Yes, all right. I, I saw a few hands go up twice. I like that. <laughs> uh, so it's possible to be an agnostic atheist. Oh, they I know. They are I, not mutually exclusive. They, they are not, and I'm, I'm going to point this out later. Yes, I, I agree. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, yes, I'm not going to get into it now, but... Uh, so I guess I'll start by telling my story. Like, apparently, almost all of you, I was also raised in a religious home. Uh, my family was... We went to a quasi-Pentecostal church. Uh, my theology was, as I grew up, became more and more Calvinistic. Uh, I'm not going to get into that, but... Uh, and I was really the the perfect Christian boy. Like, I never drank, never smoked, never uh, never had sex... Uh, so while, while my friends were out, you know, breaking commandments and being sinners, I was leading the Christian club at my high school. I know, yes. Very good boy. I, so I preached twice a week at this club for three years, almost twice a week for three years. So you do the math. Uh, I've, I've done a number of, quite a number of sermons. This is my first speaking event as a non-believer. So there you go. you. So, but actually, so one good thing, well, th- th- there are many good things. I'm thankful I had the opportunity to leave the Christian Club. It helped me to fine tune my speaking abilities. My first talk was I read a verse from John 6 and said I liked it. Uh, so there has been some improvement. I've still got a, a ways to go, as I'm sure, I'll, uh, I'm sure it won't be perfect. But, but I, actually, my speaking abilities became so fine tuned, I actually was my valedictorian, my class valedictorian. So that, that was fun. And after I graduated, I got a scholarship to Douglas. Uh, went, I'm studying psychology there now, and, and remained, up until less than a year ago, very active in the church. I was preaching at two different young adults groups, volunteering with kids, Bible studies, things like that. And I had always been, I suppose, a fairly skeptical Christian. I was very open to evidence and open to, to arguments, interested in Christian philosophy. I believed in evolution and things like that. So I was pretty, pretty open-minded as a Christian. But as I went into college and started to question more, I started to become increasingly skeptical. And there came a point where I guess you could you could call me a Christian existentialist. So Soren Kierkegaard famously was an, an agnostic. Right, he didn't think that the arguments for Christianity were enough to prove the existence of God, but he still believed in God and still believed in the truth of the Bible, because it gave him existential fulfillment. He believed that that was the basis for him for him believing it and. Which really, when you cut away all the philosophical smokescreen, it means that you believe in Christianity because it makes you happy, right? You never say it like that, because that sounds delusional, because it is delusional. And this was essentially where I was at. But then something happened. I got depressed. Really depressed. And generally, I'm, I'm almost happy to a fault. Like, I was a theater kid, and a number of people suspected that I was gay. Uh, Because I was single, never had a girlfriend, and I was still like, and I was a theater kid. And of all the gay people I've known, most of them have been in theater. That's not a coincidence. There was one time when I I was in a Shakespeare festival, and how many of you are familiar with *Midsummer Night's Dream*? Uh, I would think, yeah, most of you. So I was Puck. (laughs) I was in tight shorts, bare feet, leafy shirt, and I twirled on stage every time. So it was needless to say there was some suspicion afterwards. Uh, I'm not gay. Not, Not that I'm sure if any of you care. And actually, I was talking to one of my coworkers. I work at a warehouse, and I told him this story. I was like, "Hey, I, people used to think I was. A lot of people think I'm gay because uh, I was a theater kid, single, and all the rest of it." And he was like, "Yeah, I pretty much thought you were gay <laughs> when you first came here." Uh, but but anyway, so so generally, I'm quite a happy person. But I, I had a depressive episode, so the whole well, Christianity makes me happy didn't really work anymore. And so I had to decide if I really believe this anymore. And I kind of went through the arguments one by one. I was like, yeah, sorry, not convinced. And I, I was walking over from my job at the bowling alley. And I went to my job a Christian and came home an atheist. I really had a, mo- a conversion moment where I was like, yeah, I guess I don't believe in, in God anymore. You and Paul on the road to Damascus. Yeah, yeah, on my road to Poco, you know, the, the atheist road to Poco. <laughs> I, I saw a, a blinding lack of light. <laughs> uh, and became an atheist. So, I'm, unfortunately, to the, uh, to the sadness of many of you, I will not be defending atheism today, because uh, I'd be preaching to the choir, as it was demonstrated earlier. If you do want to see me defend atheism, you can look me up on YouTube. I'll do a little shameless self-promotion. You can go on YouTube, and if you search Confessions of a Recovering Christaholic... You will find my playlist, and I, it's 21 videos, it's like, something like three hours long, uh, so if you, if you have no life and just you know, want, want to see my story. So I, I go through five traditional arguments for Christian theism, and give eight positive arguments for atheism. Uh, so, and I also do some other things, but that, that's the, the bulk of the video series. So I'm not going to defend atheism, but I will define atheism, because I think there, we have to be very careful here. Uh, as, what's your, as Chloe cor- correctly pointed out, atheism and agnosticism are, are not mutually exclusive. Agnosticism means you don't know, atheism means you don't believe, you could not know and not believe. But there's a bit of fighting though, because sometimes agnostics will say, oh, atheists are just you know arrogant agnostics, and then atheists will say that agnostics are just cowardly <laughs> atheists. And sometimes Christians will assert, when you say, oh, I'm an atheist or I'm an agnostic or I'm this, that, or the other, they will assert what you mean by what you say you believe. And that's not a good way to have a conversation. I'm sure some of you have had conversations like that. So I will define what I mean by atheist. So again, agnostic is someone who does not know if God exists, and an atheist is someone who does not believe that God exists. If you ask me what do I identify as, it depends what God means. God is a very... There's a lot of different meanings. If God means a generic creator, someone who fine-tuned nature's constants, say the God of Plato or the God of Einstein or uh, the God of Spinoza, if God means something like that, then I would identify as an agnostic. Uh, Strictly speaking, I don't know if such a God exists. I'm perfectly open to it. If God means the God of any particular religion, like the God of the Bible or... Thor, or Vishnu, or some other specific god of a particular religion, I am most assuredly an atheist. I do not believe that the god of any particular religion exists. And while I don't want to get into an epistemological discussion of what knowledge is, again, if you want that, you can go right. to my YouTube uh, channel, uh, it's all there for you, but I I have studied the god of the Bible my entire life, well, my entire thinking life, I wasn't you know, an infant and studying Kierkegaard and Augustine, but, but my entire thinking life, I've been studying the Bible. And I'm willing to say that I know that the God of the Bible does not exist. So, I, I, I am an atheist. Like, I'm not a... And I'm not a half-assed atheist either. Like, I'm, I, I'm willing to say that I know that the God of the Bible does not exist. I'm also a naturalist, and I'm sure many of you are as well. How kind of you would say, consider yourselves naturalists. Okay, so a naturalist is someone who believes that only nature exists. So, so anyway, Well, lots of fun words today. As nature. opposed to what? What else Spiritual would we So, God, spirits, angels, demons, oh, ghosts, djinns. Okay. Most atheists are naturalists. What? Define nature. Matter, energy, and their emergent properties. So, yeah. Uh, Wait a minute. Energy, you're talking about E equals mc squared, or... No, 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 no. yeah, the first one, the first one. Not the New Age version. No, not the New Age version, no, no. (laughs) That was a good clarification. So matter, energy, and their immersion properties. So 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 I've defined atheist, and now I'll define what I mean by Christian. Uh, There are seven things that go along with me saying I'm a Christian. The first is that I consider myself a follower of Jesus. That was pretty straightforward. Yes or no? Yes, I do. I consider myself a follower of Jesus. I consider myself an adherent of Christian theology. I'm sure some of you are a little weirded out, but I'm going to get there. I also consider myself a Trinitarian. That is, someone who adheres to the concept of the Trinity. Again, just just take a deep breath, I'm going to explain it later. (laughs) Number four, I'm someone who prays. Five, I'm someone who worships, reads scripture, and believes in the value of the gospel. I'm seeing lots of puzzled words uh, And that, that's my point. So I'm, I'm going to explain what, the rest of my talk, I'm going to explain what I mean by what I just said. Those are my seven points. In Bible college, they tell you that when you preach a sermon, you should only ever have three points, maybe four. And I'm going to have seven. Uh, most of us are unbelievers here, and apparently studies show that unbelievers have higher IQs, higher rates of education. See, we, we can handle it. So we're going to do seven points. So we're going to start with Jesus. Jesus is the main course. He's the, the longest section of my talk. He is, after all, the one who put the Christ in Christianity, so we'll spend some time here. I have three points about Jesus. The first is that he existed, and I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time there. It's, that's really worthy of a, a whole talk, uh, but I'm just, I just want to briefly make a case for that. Uh, how, many of you, how many of you believe that Jesus existed? Okay, i got some work to do. Uh, Hopefully I don't offend all of you. Hopefully at some point I get to come back. But uh, I'm going to say a few things for that. So Jesus existed. Two, that he was important. And three, that he was awesome. So those are my three points. He was real, important, and awesome. So so I'll start with existed. Take a deep breath. Okay. Now, but before I take a cursory look at the evidence for Jesus' existence, I want to clear up some things. The, The first one is that among... Professional historians, this is not controversial. This is not really debated anymore. It's not something that's up for grabs in contemporary scholarship. So there are historians who are atheists, who are well-trained, who specialize in early Christianity and the historical Jesus, and they devote their entire lives to studying the New Testament and the relevant secular sources. Among, And there are thousands of these people, many of whom are secular, atheists, etc., or are members of different religions. Among these scholars who have PhDs, there are two, two who doubt the existence of Jesus. So, to give some perspective, that means that there are more biologists who doubt evolution than there are historians who doubt the existence of Jesus. Now, that doesn't prove that he existed. I'm not appealing to authority, but that should give us pause. If you're going to disagree with with virtually every scholar on this issue, you better have some good evidence. (laughs) And there's a misconception among secular people like ourselves that you can't use, so this is a Bible, it's my, my Bible, that you can't use the Bible to prove the existence of Jesus. Or you can't appeal to the Gospels or the New Testament. This is not true. The Bible contains our best sources for the historical Jesus. And they are biased, unapologetically so. But to say that an ancient source is biased is to say that it's an ancient source. <laughs> right? There are no ancient sources that don't contain bias. And fortunately, historians have developed controlled methods to determine which parts are accurate and which parts aren't. So, so there, there are, uh, so for example, how, the nativity story. When these methods are applied to the nativity story, it fails miserably. I don't know of a single historian, secular historian, who thinks that Jesus was born in Bethlehem or any of that nonsense. Uh, it's generally accepted that he was born in Nazareth. But if, if, if we talk about the crucifixion, the evidence for the crucifixion is overwhelming. It, it's one of the most certain facts of ancient history, uh, and we can do we can arrive at this from the New Testament. Now, there are sources outside of the New Testament that talk about Jesus, Josephus, Tacitus, and Marbarzorapian, uh, and I, I would be willing to believe in Jesus on the basis of those three sources. But they're really not our best sources. If they all disappeared tomorrow, I would still believe in Jesus. And if you want to talk about those sources, we can you can ask during the Q and A. But the sources we have in the New Testament, I'll briefly go over them. Uh, don't want to spend too much time here. So our best source on Jesus is actually not the Gospels, it's the writings of Paul. So Paul, uh, we know he existed because we have his letters, we have his actual writings. That's a clue. And he knew eyewitnesses. He knew people who knew Jesus. He was in direct communication with Jesus' brother. Actually, multiple brothers. And as Bart Ehrman, how many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman? He's a more a fairly well-known uh, scholar. So he's, a, he's, a, he's a Christian a historian of early Christianity. He's not a Christian at all. He's very anti-Christian. And he's joked and said, well, you know, if Jesus didn't exist, his little brother would know about it. Perhaps. Uh, and, and Paul was in direct communication with Jesus' brothers, his closest disciples, and he clearly believed that Jesus was a historical person. And he has some scattered details about his life with people says he was born of a woman. Uh, he says that he was crucified. He says that he talks of the Last Supper. Mentions a few teachings of Jesus, like his teaching on divorce, for example. And that's pretty much it. But he's a pretty good source. He was in communication with the eyewitnesses. Additionally, there are a few creeds, uh, accounts of the the crucifixion in the Book of Acts and Paul's letters that go back to the original apostles themselves. This is the conclusion of almost every scholar, because they they're, they read like Creeds and they read like translations of Aramaic and they don't read like Paul, They're, they don't read like Paul's vocabulary. And so, it's generally accepted that these are that these go back to the apostles who spoke Aramaic. The best example of this is 1 Corinthians 15, which again, every scholar with like two or three exceptions believes that it was written, that it was uh, formulated within five years of the crucifixion. That's really early, really early, like what was. What was the creed in 1 Corinthians 15. So it's a creed that says Jesus was crucified. And also that various apostles saw visions of him after he was dead. Which I also believe happened. Now, I'm not going to give into the whole hallucination thing, but they were likely hallucinating. Almost certainly hallucinating. So just to give some perspective, how many of you have heard of Alexander the Great? Right? No. Yes. The earliest biography we have of Alexander the Great was written 400 years after he died. Christians often make this point, and they're not wrong. They usually are, but on this point, they're 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 they're, they're right. Uh, so five years is stupidly good when we're dealing with ancient history. And then, of course, we also have the four Gospels. Um, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, I think I've I've made my case. But if you want to know more about the reliability of the Gospels, well, some Gospels are more reliable than others. Uh, we can talk about it during the Q and A. But I, I think I've made my case. This could be an entire talk. My next point about Jesus is that he was important. He was a big deal. So I have a few points here. One of them is a little bit less serious, but actually not really. So, you know, how many of you remember school, being in school? Uh, for some of you, maybe a bit longer ago than others. Uh, it wasn't too long ago for me. I'm only 19. I'm just fresh, fresh out of, into the real world. Uh, and the way you tell it in school, who's important, look for who everyone's fighting over. Like when it's sports day or whatever, who's people are like, oh, I want him on my team. Oh, I want him on my team. Or you know, the girl's are like, oh, he likes me. No, he likes me, right? You know, like whoever people are fighting over, probably he's a big deal. And people have always been fighting over Jesus. So let me give you some examples. The Quran says that Jesus was a prophet of Allah. And Muslims today maintain that Jesus was a Muslim. And they will say, Jesus was a Muslim. He's on my team, right? See, see what I'm getting at here? Uh, Adolf Hitler, some of you may have heard of him. He presented Jesus as a Nazi and said that Jesus, quote, fought against the Jewish poison. Which, Jesus was Jewish! Yeah, like, right? So the, uh, but even Hitler wanted Jesus on his team. Fidel Castro said Jesus was the first socialist. Now, yeah, no, 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 I'm sure many of us are socialists here, myself included. <laughs> Probably not of the Fidel Castro variety, uh, but socialist nonetheless. And even Fidel Castro wanted Jesus on his team. Pamela Anderson, uh, and it's pretty generous to call her an actress, but you know. So Pamela Anderson, uh, a celebrity, says Jesus is my homeboy. Right? Even Pamela Anderson, he's my best friend, right? You know, like everyone's fighting over Jesus, right? And no one does this for any other historical figure. No one's ever like, you know, Alexander the Great was really on my team, or Alexander the Great's my homeboy. Like, no one really does this but they say that about Justin Bieber too <laughs> I'm not even going to grace that <laughs> we are not talking about Justin Bieber uh, but so, so, so some their very obvious points about Jesus Jesus is what we base our system of dating around he divides the calendar now I know us secular liberals we uh, use BCE and CE you can call it before Apple and after Apple for all I care it was based on the life of Jesus. Now, he's the person who divides the calendar. That's a pretty big deal. And also, know, so the Bible has Jesus as the central character. It's been more written about, studied. It's a better selling book than any other book ever written. So again, he's a big deal. And of course, finally, the most obvious point, to over 2 billion people, or 2 billion of our fellow human beings, view Jesus as God. Another 1.6 billion view him as a prophet. And millions of non-religious people, like myself, center our lives around his ethical teachings. We're talking about nearly 4 billion people center their lives around Jesus of Nazareth. Like, who else in history can compare to that much influence? No, no one can. And again, Bart Ehrman, who is by no means a Christian, and is very anti-Christian, in fact, in his writings, says that Jesus is, quote, the most important person in the history of civilization. And this is coming from, from a vehemently anti-Christian scholar. I, 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 in fact, agree with him. So Jesus is important. My third point is that Jesus is awesome. So, it's, it, you know, Genghis Khan was also very important, but I don't think we want to base our lives around his moral philosophy, to, to say the least. But I, 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 I do think we should do just that with Jesus. So let me, I'm going to say a few things about Jesus' awesomeness. The first thing about Jesus that I love is that Jesus fought with religious leaders. So, how many of you like fighting with religious people? Oh, come on! Uh, I, uh, okay, I do. I love arguing with religious people. Uh, and, like, actually, just last night I was at a ca- kind of a Catholic Alpha kind of event and was there to you know, make it interesting. And I'm going to be doing a debate on premier Christian radio uh, with a Christian scholar on the resurrection. I love arguing with religious people. Do it all the time. Right? And she, and no one did it better than Jesus. Right? Jesus, he called the, the religious leaders of his time children of hell, children of the devil, um, blind fools, hypocrites. Like, I like fighting with religious people, but even for me, that's a bit much. Like, blind fools, snakes, viper, etc. He would have made Chris Hitchens look like a pushover. Like, he was just a very vehemently anti, uh, anti-religious anti leader. One of my favorite stories in the Bible... Uh, Jesus goes to a religious party, and it's one of those parties. Like some of you have been to them, and they're just awful. Where you know, there's one guy at the, at the party who's praying in King James English, and just ruins the whole the whole event. So Jesus goes to something like that. Why we don't know. And the Pharisees had this rule that you couldn't wash your hands before dinner, and they took it very seriously. Like they were like, like if you don't wash your hands before dinner, like you're going to hell. It's just very very serious. And Jesus didn't wash his hands before dinner, perhaps to annoy them. They're like, oh, you're a sinner, you got," and she's like, "Whoa, whoa, just calm down, Jesus Christ!" Oh, that's me. Um, <laughs> and like, you know, it, and just scathingly criticizes them. So, if you like fighting with religious people, you should like Jesus. That's my big point. You should like Jesus, and I know it's a little ironic, but hey, I, I'm personally, I'm kind of a fan. My second point about Jesus is he cared for the social outcasts. For the ostracized, for the poor. Jesus, after he was finished bashing the religious people, would spend time with prostitutes, lepers, tax collectors, non Jews. In our context, think racial minorities, homeless people, gays, transgenders. These are the sorts of people that Jesus would have hanged, would have been around. And I don't know what happened, but the Republicans kidnapped Jesus, and I want him back. <laughs> Okay? Jesus was not a Republican. Okay? He was just not. Okay? Like, Jesus stood up for the rights of the minorities. He stood up for the poor. He stood up for nonviolence. And this is... The Republicans do anything but that. And I just... I don't know what happened. I want Jesus back. Okay? And I hope some of you do, too. Yeah, like Fidel Castro said. The fact that Fidel Castro said that makes me a little uncomfortable. But... And my, my third point about Jesus' awesomeness... Is, is his moral teachings. These are things that, 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 that we live by. And they're not necessarily unique to Jesus, but they are still very good. In some ways, better put than anywhere else. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Right. Give to the poor. These sorts of things are, are, are very sound teachings. Like I will teach my children the Sermon on the Mount. And I will say, live by these principles. These are good principles to live by. And Jesus says at the end, you know, if you build your life on my teachings, it's like building a house on a rock. It'll, it'll give your life stability and, and soundness. I, I agree with that. I think Jesus' teachings are worth building your life around. At this point, many Christians will come and say and give the famous liar, lunatic, lord argument from C.S. Lewis. Some of you may have heard this argument. It essentially goes like this You can't be an atheist and viewed Jesus as a great moral teacher. Because he claimed to be God. And so if he claimed to be God, there's only three choices. He was lying, or he was a nut job, he was crazy, or he really was who he said he was. Thus, he was God. Uh, I think that's way too simplistic. I think we should add a fourth possibility. Maybe Jesus genuinely believed he was God, but was honestly mistaken. Nothing, nothing weird about that. Now, I actually don't think Jesus claimed to be God, and neither do... Really, any secular historians. Is there a god. What? He said everyone's a god. Oh. the Old Testament everybody's a god? We'll talk after. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that's the case. Um, so, so one thing we have to be clear on, not everything in the Gospels is equally reliable. There are some things in the Gospels that when we control me- put, put control methods on them, come out as probably not historical. And then we do so with every ancient text. It's not just the Gospels. Any ancient text, we have to apply methods to them for example, there. I'm pretty sure it's Pythagoras. There's some account of Pythagoras like calming <laughs> the storms or something. Sorry, son of God. Son of God. Yes. Okay. Sorry, yes. 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 <coughs> all people are viewed as sons of God. Yes. Yeah. But not God. Yeah. No, no, sorry yes. About that. Good. Okay. I was like. We have to <laughs> cherry pick. Only men though, they were sons of God. Well, God? Yeah. For a while. Well, I'm not going to into it. In New Testament theology, sons of God it does apply to women as well. Um, well, they got written up in the Bible now I forgot what I was saying I'm sure it was really good too um, so, so so, for ex- the, all the really juicy times where Jesus claims to be God are in John and John's not really taken seriously so I, Jesus probably didn't think he but despite this and now this is where I'm going to start to offend some of you, I am willing to consider Jesus to be God in some sense um, so I'll explain what I mean the clearest declaration of the deity, the deity or the, the divinity of Jesus is in John 1. And John 1 is very poetic, very metaphorical, and it says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, or became human in Jesus. And the Greek word for word is logos, and it has all sorts of uh, 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 philosophical connotations. And again, I'm willing to use the word God as a metaphor, as I'm going to explain in my next point. I think that the word God Einstein did this. Einstein used the word God as a metaphor for the beauty and the harmony of the universe. And I think that we can use the word God as a metaphor for moral truth. As a metaphor for moral truth. So we can say things like obeying the will of God as a metaphor for doing moral things. And in this sense, I think I'm willing to say that Jesus embodied God. He embodied objective moral truth. He didn't just say moral truth. He, he lived it out. He embodied moral truth. And thus I identify with the morality of Jesus and devote myself to his teachings and, 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 and thus consider myself a Christian in this sense. Now at this point you can say, well, why not be a Confucian atheist or a Taoist atheist or a, a Hindu atheist and identify with you know, Lao Tzu or Krishna? And there's nothing wrong with with... with these teachers are also very make some very sound points on morality. Uh, and you can say, well, why focus all of your, or at least most of your spiritual and moral attention into one tradition? Well, why why, why just the Christian tradition? Why? It, it, yeah, so why, why should... Because well, I do this. I, I, I do. I have the Bhagavad Gita here and uh, Humanist Bible, which is a collection of secular literature, like Confucius and Plato and things like that. So I do read other texts, but I, I primarily identify with the Christian tradition the Buddha said that if you want to get at water you don't dig six one foot holes you dig one six foot hole similarly if you want to attain a sense of spiritual you know, fulfillment or peace it's in some ways better to invest primarily within one religious tradition and again I, I, I'm not really I don't believe in God or anything but as far as my my language for understanding morality my language for you know Well, I'll get into my theological language in the next point, but I am primarily identified with the Christian tradition. I don't think there's anything irrational or weird about that. It's just a language that I choose to use to describe moral truth, etc. So now my next point is theology. So I I do believe that theology is redeemable. Now, theology, as it's practiced by Christians, is mythical nonsense and unjustified and Uh, I can be as vehement as you want about it. I I think it's ridiculous. But I think that... So one thing that doesn't get pointed out enough about theology... Now, theology means study of God, if that makes sense. So so it comes from the Greek theos. It means study of God. Now, theology is inescapably metaphorical and symbolic. Theological statements are are almost never literally true. Even Christians don't... If you push them on it, they don't generally consider their theological statements to be literally true. Let's take a few examples. The claim that God is in me. Or God is in me. is that, that That's a central theological statement for especially Pentecostal Christ, Christians. Is God literally like, you know, like you know, evangelicals say, Christ, Jesus is in my heart. Well, no. It, they don't really mean that. It's a metaphor. And But the problem with this metaphor is I'm not even really sure what it means. So usually metaphors are not literal. But they're always not literal. But the, it's pretty clear what the intended meaning is. So when Romeo says, Juliet, your face is the sun, or whatever the hell he says, um, that's a metaphor, but we all know what that means. It's perfectly clear what it means. He's saying she's physically beautiful, or something of that sort. But when Christians say God is in me, I'm not even sure what the metaphor means, because it, it means God is in my spirit or something, but the spirit has no location. It has no physical component. How can you be inside something that doesn't have a physical essence? It's not clear to me. Take the claim that Jesus is alive. That's a pretty you know, central claim to Christianity. Jesus is alive. What does it mean for the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth to be alive? Presumably, he's does he have a physical body? Can he does he have to shave? Like you know, if not, in what sense is he still Jesus? What does it mean to be Jesus in an immaterial place? And then when he comes back, is he is he, he going to get the body back? I don't know. It's not clear what this statement, Jesus. Jesus is alive means, it's not clear to me what it means, if used in the Christian sense. When I say, as I do, things like, God made me, God is in me, Jesus is alive, as you say those things, I'm still using a metaphor, just like the Christian is, but I know what I mean. I know exactly what I mean. So take the claim God created me. If I use the word God, as Einstein did, to refer to the ultimate reality of the universe or, or the laws that govern the universe, which Einstein did, well then yeah, God did make me. As it's, it's, we all know how he did this. Now I'm still, it's a metaphor, because saying God made me presupposes intentionality, which I don't think the laws of nature have. It's a metaphor, just like the Christian theological things are. But I know what I mean when I say God made me. I know exactly what I mean. God is in me. Again, if God is a metaphor for human reason, as some people have used it as a metaphor for consciousness. Again, God is in me. Okay, I know what I mean. Jesus is alive. If I say something like... So, so again, as I said earlier, Jesus is inextricably connected with his teachings. And his teachings live on. His teachings are still being embodied. And so if I say, Jesus is alive, that's what I mean. And I know what I mean when I say it. Unlike Christian theological claims. So... Again, I've talked to some people and tried to make similar noises to the ones I'm making now, and they'll say, oh, you're making theology meaningless. But actually, I'm making it more meaningful. I'm making it more concrete and more meaningful. And at this point, you can jump in and be skeptical and say, "Well, well, why bother? Why bother even playing this word game? Why bother doing theology at all? I would suggest that you can play the exact same skeptical game with any number of human enterprises. Poetry, literature, fiction, cinema, theater. Why bother writing poetry? Why bother using metaphors in literature? Well, well I, the bottom line is we just like doing it. <laughs> right? we, we, it gives us existential fulfillment and a deeper sense of meaning. And I think that we are evolved to do these things. We're, we're evolved to use language this way. We're evolved to enjoy theater. We have various evolutionary reasons for enjoying theater. And I think we're evolved to be theological. I, I, so, and it's actually really good for us. Um, there's some studies that are kind of depressing. And again, they control further variables. Religious people live about eight years longer than secular people do. And there's a variety of reasons why. Uh, and so I think that's not fair. So I want a piece of that action, and so I, you you can, if you want, just you know, suppress your theological impulses to use theological metaphors and say, "No, I'm going to be a good, cold, calculating intellectual." But you're hurting yourself. I have chosen to embrace my religious impulses. I think it's very good for me. And again, I'm still an atheist, but I think that there's something good about using theological metaphors as a lens to view reality through. This leads me to, to discuss a very interesting and very complex. Christian theological claim, which is the Trinity. I got some some dirty looks when I, when I used that word in my introduction. So for those of you who, who don't know, I'm sure most of you do, but, but the Christian doctrine of the Trinity is that there's one God, but he exists as three persons, right? Father, Son, and Spirit. That's the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. And I, I don't think it's at all literally true, of course. But it's, it's not unique to Christianity. Hindus have a trinity, Taoists have a trinity, Buddhists have a sort of a trinity, and there's something to be said for a kind of trinity in platonic philosophy. Truth, goodness, and beauty are the highest forms in platonic philosophy. <laughs> I love children. I, I don't know, there's just, okay, secular people need to have more kids. I'm just saying, because we're losing, and it's really not good. Uh, anyways, I'm not going to make that point now. Just <laughs> I know. Well, I'm not going to make it ad nauseum, which I could, but I'm not going to. So I have constructed what I consider to be three Trinitarian archetypes that the various Trinities can fit into. In all of the Trinities in various religions, there tends to be a transcendent and imminent creator. So we call it the Father in Christianity. So a, a creator that is outside of us, right? Out there, he created us, but he's also inside of us in some capacity. He's, we're, we're one with him, or we bury his image, or something like that. This is often symbolized by the ocean—that there's an ocean of reality, that, and we are but a drop that came out of it, and we go back to it. This is an image that gets used in Hindu philosophy. The second aspect of ultimate reality, or of, of the various trinities, is the moral law or lawgiver. This would be God the Son in Christianity. It would be Vishnu in Hinduism, Tao uh, de and in Taoism. Okay, there's various persons that would correspond to this. And the third archetype is, is the mysterious, mystical, omnipresent aspect of God. And it's often symbolized by the heavens or the sky. And yet these three are all one in some sense. They're all different manifestations of the same reality. Now, I think we're right to ask, why is this very specific notion of Trinity so universal? Why are there so many different, completely disconnected religions that come up with this this same notion of Trinity? I think it might be, and I'm open to different uh, opinions on this, but I think that that it corresponds to our spiritual experiences.
1: That we do have this
0: kind of three-in-one experience of reality. So some of our spiritual experiences have to do with the fact that, Okay. Wow. There's ultimate reality that is transcendent. It's out there. It's outside of me, but yet it's also inside. And I'm also one with the universe or God or call it whatever you want. And on the that's the first trinitarian archetype. And we also have an experience of moral law. We have a sense that there's we have this intuition that some things are right and some things are wrong. And again, we feel responsible for our actions. And then there's a third, more broad. Mystical aspect of reality of of, of, uh, of spiritual experiences. So now, now to be clear, so I, I am a Trinitarian. I do consider myself a Trinitarian. I view the world through this Trinitarian lens, but I don't think the Trinity exists. Okay, I'm an atheist. So I, I want to make that clear. I think that it's a useful lens to view the world through. It is an interpretive framework that I impose on my experience to give it more meaning. And again, you can say, why bother? Why even bother doing that? Well, I think that ultimately we do the same thing with language. Language is an interpretive framework that we impose on our experience to give it meaning. So this shirt, I look at this shirt and I, I call it shirt. It's part of the English language. But there's nothing inherently shirtish about this. It, it, it's, it's, there's, nothing, there's no linguistic quality to this shirt. It's, language is something we impose on reality to give it meaning and to give us a common language to, to talk about it to each other. And theology, in the words of one religious scholar, who I will not name, but he said that that theology can be a set of symbols and metaphors that provide a language to express what is inexpressible. It's not more right or more wrong than any other symbols or metaphors. It's a language, and that's all it is. And in this, I use the Trinity as a kind of a language to describe reality. And it is, again, deeply metaphorical and symbolic. Prayer. I could say a lot more about this, but for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on one aspect of prayer, and that is prayer for wisdom. Wisdom is something that Christians often pray for, and God is sometimes uh, unwilling to give it to them. <laughs> Some Christians just keep praying for wisdom, and God is what I give it to them. How many of you know who Kent Hovind is? Who? Kent Hovind. He's a young earth creationist in the United States who was recently released from prison uh, for tax evasion. <laughs> oh it's just the irony is just so good and then he I forget what I mean, he broke some law while he was in prison I don't even know how you do that and they extended his sentence but he's out now I'm sure he prays for wisdom and God just refuses to give it to him <laughs> I don't know maybe someday so but I pray for wisdom all the time I, I, when I wrote this sermon I prayed for God to give me wisdom Prayer for me is merely a practice of honing in my spiritual attention and cultivating a, a sort of a reverent attitude and a humble attitude, and it is a way of expressing my longing for wisdom to come and cultivating an attitude of expectation for it to come. it's purely poetic and, and, and metaphorical, but it is deeply empowering. Sometimes I'd be exhausted, I'd be you know, sick of typing this up, and I would just I, would, I would pray for wisdom, and I I would I, would, I found it helped me uh, that it helped me keep going. However, I don't just pray for wisdom and then, like, you know, wait for the divine light bulb. Uh, you know, like I still go and think for myself and figure out what I'm going to say. And this is, in fact, biblical. In 2 Timothy 2.7, Paul, well, Paul probably didn't write it. That's another issue. But uh, whoever wrote it said, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you wisdom. So think for yourself. Think with sober judgment. Right? Paul says also. You know, test all things, as I said earlier. Think with sober judgment, but God will give you wisdom. Expect for wisdom to come from God. Another type of prayer is prayer of thankfulness. And this is closely related to worship. Uh, I am a, a, a deeply worshipful person. I, I love worshiping. There are a few things that make me as, <laughs> as joyous and, and happy and, and in awe as religious worship. We live in a world with so many things to worship God for. Again, using God metaphorically, but so many things to be thankful for. Sometimes I'll be thankful for the most like simple things, like sometimes I'll be walking. I'll be like, "Holy shit, I can walk! Like I don't know, like, like I, I can, I can move, I can go places, I can go see things, go to events like this, go see a movie, go to be with friends." And I don't drink, so I've heard that drinking makes it more difficult to walk, but I'm always sober, so I can always walk, and I'm deeply thankful for it. The ability to see things, like, like wow, I like, just like, and the, and the, I open my eyes and the stuff I see is just like, like I don't, I don't know what to say. Like when I see the a sunset or I see the night sky or I see, a, I'll be riding on my bike, and I see birds fly over me or I, 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 ride by a path of flowers and I'm just like, wow. And, and the only response that I feel is appropriate is religious worship. And I, I grew up in the church and all my favorite songs are, are worship songs and I sing them all the time. Probably more than any other song, and I'm kind of like I'm always singing. Like when I'm at work, like I'll, I'll sing off key and everything because when I'm in a good mood. Probably religious songs I sing more than any other. I want to read a quote from uh, Albert Einstein about this. So Albert Einstein said, "Drink some water to be worthy to read Albert Einstein." Uh, the most beautiful emotion we can experience is the mystical. It is the power of all true art and science. He to whom this emotion is a stranger, who can no longer stand wrapped in awe and wonder, is as good as dead. To know that what is impenetrable to us really exists, manifesting itself as the highest wisdom and most radiant beauty, which our dull faculties can only comprehend in their most primitive forms. This knowledge, this feeling, is at the center of true religiousness. In this sense, and in this sense only, I belong to the rank of devoutly religious men. So yeah, we, we all experience mystical awe at the beauty of the universe, and we long to express it. And I would suggest that the best way to express this mystical awe is religious worship. It is a deeply powerful way to express this feeling. So now I'm going to move on to Scripture. So when worship, prayer, and philosophical contemplation gets codified and written down and becomes scripture. And what religious people do is they prayerfully engage with the text to gain a sense of spiritual fulfillment. We should not let them have a monopoly on this. We should be doing this too. Like, like, there's nothing wrong with prayerfully, contemplatively, reading, even religious literature, for the sake of spiritual fulfillment. It's a deeply healthy and powerful thing to do. So I have before me uh, a Bible... Uh, the, the Humanist Bible, it's called The Good Book. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's a collection of various uh, secular philosophical teachings. It's very good. I also have the Bhagavad Gita. I was going to read quotes from the Bhagavad Gita and the uh, Humanist Bible, but I don't have time, so I'm just going to read one quote from the Bible. Let's unzip it up. It's my first time preaching from the Bible as an atheist. This is a very powerful moment. Now, I have a long history with uh, with this Bible, actually. I'm going to read a quote from the Gospel of John now this passage is attributed to Jesus Jesus almost certainly did not say this Uh, I'm not going to get into why scholars think that but I think we should again treat this as a symbolic metaphor Uh, Jesus presents himself in this passage as the true vine of God Uh, and I think again this is deeply metaphorical and we should treat it as such (coughs) I am the true vine. Every branch in me... I'm sorry. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit in itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. (coughs) I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If finally, greater love as no one than this, than that someone lay down his life for his friends. And the Christians claim that Jesus practiced what he preached when he said, Greater love has no one he this, miss than that he laid out his life for his friends. The gospel is that Jesus perfectly exemplified this truth by dying in our place. And I'm going to close with this notion of gospel. So first of all, I'll define the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is God become a man, and that he died on the cross in our place for our sins. That he was broken so that we could be made whole. <clears throat> to be clear, I think this is a myth. I don't think, I don't think this is true. I, I do think Jesus died on the cross. I think that's a historical certainty. But I don't think that it was a substitutionary atonement or anything like that. I think the Romans were pissed at him and they killed him. That's all that that historically happened. But I think that this myth, this this story that the crucifixion was on our behalf is a very beautiful one. Many atheist public intellectuals view this as barbaric and gross and and disgusting. I couldn't disagree more. I, I think there are a few stories that are more beautiful than this one. I thought, and maybe it's just because I was raised a Christian, but I can't help it. I read the story. I'm like, that is that is beautiful. Like it, it brings tears to my eyes. And I think that the gospel can ultimately be a metaphor for humanism. I'll explain why. So the gospel, the idea that Jesus died for us, is often presented alongside moral commands. For example, Paul says, "Love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for you." Right. So again, now, I think that can be a, a deeply powerful metaphor for our ethical obligations to one another, to self-sacrifice. Additionally, Paul says that if we share in Jesus' death, we will also share in his resurrection. So Jesus died for others and was given new life. Similarly, if we die for others and you know, die to ourselves for others, we shall receive new life. This is actually true. Self-indul- or self-sacrifice or self is more rewarding than self-indulgence. So if, let's say Ulrich, if I give Ulrich uh, and told Ulrich to I'm not going to, but if I gave him $100 and said spend it on yourself and then I gave Chloe $100 and said spend it on Joanna uh, at the end of said experiment, Chloe will be happier this has been demonstrated in numerous experiments, Ulrich will be too because I'll take the $100 all all things being equal uh, (laughs) Chloe will be happier Self-sacrifice is more rewarding than self-indulgence. There's an old Christian song, it's one of my favorites, and it's it's The Wonderful Cross. The chorus says, I'm not going to sing, because that would be really bad for everyone, Uh, but it says, Oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the wonderful cross, it bids me come and die and find that I may truly live. And this idea that self-sacrifice is better than self-indulgence is at the heart of humanism. And I can't think of a religion that teaches this better than Christianity. And I think we should thus embrace Christianity insofar as we are able to as atheists.